Hey everybody, it's Julian. Thank you guys for tuning in. This is Let's Be Real, where we talk about real stuff with real people. My guest today is Eugene Soltz. Eugene is a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School, where his work focuses on corporate integrity and risk management. He's also the author of Why They Do It, Inside the Mind of a White Collar Criminal, a book focused on getting into the minds of some of the world's most infamous white collar criminals. He's also one of the smartest, kindest, and most genuine people I have ever had the privilege of meeting. Eugene, welcome to the program. Pleasure to be here, Julian. Thanks so much for the invitation. No problem. So Eugene, to, ki- to kick us off, you know, I know you're a Harvard Business School professor. You've been doing that for a while. Sounds like you're loving it and having a great time. But tell me about the other stuff you're working on. You had this book. It sounds like you have some other things in the works. Catch us up on, on a snapshot of, of the many projects I'm sure you're on. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I managed to keep myself pretty busy. Uh, so I've been at HBS for the last uh, 11 years now, um, uh, writing a couple books. Uh, I have a second book uh, coming out, uh, it looks like early next year. Um, and uh, uh, on the side, uh, founded uh, last year, kind of uh, everyone has their COVID story about what they were doing. Uh, I effectively founded a effectively a data analytics firm uh, focused on applying some of the research analytics that we were doing in work to help firms and organizations apply them. So let's say it's been it's been busy. Um, I think the thing I found last year that if you remove travel, which I used to do a lot of, uh, you can kind of have maybe a little bit more of the best of all worlds. I, I was able to spend more time with my family and kids and feel like I could do 20% more. So uh, a busy year. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like it. And COVID, I suppose, is a blessing and a curse. You gain a little bit of productivity. That's that's very good to hear, actually, because I feel like for most folks, it, in some sense, has melded home and work so much that we don't know where to turn mental health-wise, you know? So that's great that you're able to actually optimize it. Well, I mean, I think being an academic, which is always where I see my first hat, I, I think that's always been the, the blessing and curse uh, because there isn't really... We have total latitude over our time, um, what projects we're working on. I mean, other than, you know, the two dozen days per year, we're in the classroom, which we have a set time, place, and location. Um, but even then, we're we're choosing what we want to teach uh, and, and how we want to present that and convey that. So I, I think uh, you always need to kind of be a master of what you need as an individual to thrive uh, because it all does blur all the time. Right, right. No, that makes perfect sense. So, Okay. You know, I'm a 27-year-old who just quit working at a law firm because I could not figure out how to manage my mental health and interests and figure all of these things out while doing the job. You know, I'm sitting here and I've cooked for myself one time in the last three days. (laughs) So how, you know, do you have a sort of secret here when you are writing a book, starting this side project on the side in business, crushing it as a Harvard Business School professor? And raising, you know, a family and, and leading that forward too. I mean, how do you do it? Do you, do you sleep? I, I mean, what what is the? Do you have a strategy? Or let us in a little bit on that. <laughs> um, well, okay, well, let's go. There's a couple sides, I think, because it's it's an important and interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I luckily I'm, I'm someone that I don't really like sleep. I realize it's a necessary ingredient to wow. thrive and be successful, but uh, sleep is like the least exciting part of the day. Um, and I, I genuinely love the things that I do. So, I mean, there's a state of uh, the psychological state known as flow where, you know, 
time, like hours and hours can pass and you, it seems like a blink in a kind of a blink in time. Um, I'll say maybe oddly, and I'm very fortunate. Most of my workday uh, feels like that. Um, it's, I, I only wish I had more hours to do more of it um, because I actually enjoy it. Um, but I mean, I think, you know, something I don't think we talk about enough um, because you know, it's, it's funny. I look back, you know, people and like, you know, I'm a professor, so professors that I admired and I, I always saw their like these lengthy CVs of all these publications and they're speaking and flying around places. And it, and, you know, they went to a great undergrad school and then grad school, they joined the faculty. They, and it all looks like this smooth trajectory. Um, and I don't think, uh, let's say CVs don't show the bumps along the way. And, and I think like, most people, uh, if you start really diving into it, there, there's there's bumps, uh, certainly bumps along the way. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think my certainly going up for tenure at a place like Harvard is it's intense. Uh, that's that's probably an understatement. Uh, that creates stresses. I, I would say I have luckily a very very supportive wife. Uh, but I, I will say, if you look at my first book, uh, the end of why do they do it. Um, I mean, I effectively wrote an apology for for all to my to my now, you know, six-year-old daughter, because for the first two years, in part working on papers and going for tenure and working on the book, you know, I'll just say I wasn't very present. Um, I'll say luckily, you know, two, one, one-year-olds have a short memory, so I'm trying to make up for that a little bit now. <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's stresses, and, you know, no one puts that in their CV about what the costs of what they were, the stresses that creates on the family and others, because you look at the impact and the, the output. Um, and so I will say, I think in doing a lot of things I've done, I've been very fortunate to have both people supportive, but I think it's coming at costs and ones that, you know, I'm continually trying to re-optimize and frankly become a better person at balancing around in that. I love that you, you mentioned tearing back the curtain and what lies beneath, because it's, it's so true that there's no, there's no perfect life. And really in our world, Especially I can say, you know, in, in my generation and those below me where we live in the era of social media that highlights and emphasizes only the positives primarily, right? And and nowhere near discusses what lies beneath the surface. Thank you for sharing that. Let me, can I dig in a little bit? So you mentioned this productivity piece about deep work and getting into flow. Have you always been gifted at that? and and or always loved what you were studying and practicing so it just came naturally or did you have to practice that i will say it's it's a deliberate maybe focus and practice uh i mean i think i'm a naturally focused person but there's also some things i've done so believe it or not up until you know what is it three and a half years ago uh so this would have been you know 20 2018 i believe uh i didn't have a cell phone um which i mean this is pretty well entrenched that you have a cell phone um, I mean, my wife, once I was having a, at a, uh, a restaurant in Harvard Square with colleagues, and my wife needed to get a hold of me, and uh, she called the restaurant, and they came over and said, you know, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Soltis, you have a, a phone, your wife is on the phone. And I mean, there's something funny with hindsight, that's like <laughs> 1950, if you watch like Mad Men, where they would bring up like a long distance call, and someone's trying to call, call you. Um, the reason I didn't have a phone is because... Uh, I saw what phones do to people. Um, You know, if you go to a restaurant, I mean, back when we were all going to restaurants, some of the, I'm a bit of a foodie, you know, going to some of the best restaurants in New York, I lamented that there'd be a group of people, four people sitting around and they're all sitting there like texting. I don't know who other people, presumably not at the table. 
at like a great restaurant where these chefs are spending 14 hours a day to create that dish. And they're just texting people that aren't there or calling other people. And, and I see how that just screws with our attention. And so I thought the best way of preventing that is to literally not allow it. Um, I've had to modernize a little bit since, um, but I try to be extremely mindful. Uh, so uh, to the unhappiness, I think to a lot of my friends, if you text me, I'm a, I'm not very good at, let's say, texting back. I kind of check my texts once a week, um, which is uh, like, that's per apparently not what you do with texting uh, is respond six days later. Um, but <laughs> I think there's a lot of what we, some people call them like life hacks. I guess I do like the opposite of life hacks, like just pulling back from some of the the things that we do day in and day out that I think really distract and change our attention um, that I don't think actually make us happier or better people or more productive, but they're like very, very clever at sucking our, our energy and our time. Wow. Very, very insightful. And something that I think a lot of people need to hear is, is folks like you leading by example, by, like you said, being incredibly mindful of using the phone. I I've noticed myself, my attention span has been completely fried from from the cell phone just texting and then flipping through the app social media dopamine 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 so i think your instincts are right on point i think our brains are meant to wonder i I mean you know i think everyone kind of jokes but i think with some truth that we come up with like you know the ideas you come up with when you're in the shower um shower is one of those few places comments because there's enough water around where like you're generally not on your phone and texting. And I think that they're the reason why you or your mind has to just wonder while you're like, you know, shampooing your hair. Uh, but we also used to get that when we were, you know, walking over to a friend's house when we were standing in line. Um, but now I, I ironically, like people are doing like, even if it's like a 30 second line, you pull out your phone, you're checking things, you're doing things and your brain never has a, that, that moment to just explore and recall and, I think a lot of processes that I'm sure there's some work going in all different directions on this. So this is not scientific what I'm saying. It's like it's my own personal feeling and reflection. I'm sure many people can relate to it nonetheless. That's very, very insightful. Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit because I want to talk about your work with your your first book, Why They Do It, and you know, getting into the minds of these white-collar criminals. When I was a kid and the Great Recession hit, Bernie Madoff, you know, was on TV and this guy was just vilified. Everyone hated him. Oh, Ponzi scheme. He, you know, took away this lady's mortgage in Arizona because of his greed. And look at what Wall Street is doing. Of course, you know, the economy was in the gutter too. So that that did not help. That said, my exposure to these folks, as with most people I'm sure out there, is only really through mass media like the news and maybe watching the movie Wolf of Wall Street. You, on the other hand, have spent hundreds of hours digging into these folks' minds and understanding them. So the first question I really have is, what is your take on these people's characters? Are, are they bad people? It's interesting because I think we all like to characterize, you know, people like good and bad people. And it's obviously incredibly easy to put someone in the, like Bernie Madoff, into the what I call bad person camp. Um, and... I mean, first, I want to state that, I mean, the harm he did to people is just like extraordinary. Uh, And I'm incredibly empathetic to those, uh, his victims, because, I mean, he he's devastated so many people who entrusted him. At the same time, I think characterizing him is a just a bad person or even uh, a a psychopath. Um, 
I mean, as I described my book, I think there he does have some sociopathic tendencies, um, which I described, but that binary classification people is almost too easy. I think I think there probably are people in this world that exist that are truly what we call evil people. But I would say those that I'm engaging with is, you know, white collar criminals. I think that's too simple of an explanation. I think, you know, they are multifaceted. I mean, many of them were, uh, you know, great with their family or great with friends or great in some context in life and actually reasonable and responsible but then it somehow drifted in some context or over some period of time or in some way. And I look at it as a much, much more of a, a tragedy that many of the people I mean, I, I spent time with in a different world with a slightly different set of events uh, could have been on a very different path and one that we would only be admiring their successes rather than their, uh, their failures. Um, and I, at least I would say I took a lot of humility away because many of the people uh, I spent time with were those we looked up to and admired. I mean, we have case studies on them at Harvard Business School. Um, A fair number of them are graduates of HBS, came to classrooms to talk about their successes. And so we're celebrating them. And then, you know, X period later, we're then vilifying them. Um, It's too easy. Uh, I've, and what I tried to do in much of my work is try to characterize that complexity in some sense, to make us all appreciate that, at least in some ways, we all have these different complexities and all these different flaws. And I, I generally am of the view that any of us, if placed in the right circumstance, under the right pressure, under the right conditions, could do things that we would all find un, uh, unfathomable. Uh, that doesn't mean we would turn to Bernie Madoff by any means, and I should clarify that. But we could do things that would we would say would be, quote, outside of our character and things that we would absolutely only associate with bad people even though we all think of ourselves as obviously high integrity, well-intentioned people. So it's, it's complicated. It's a long but short answer. I know that there's no silver bullet here. So with that said, if you could identify the one or maybe the, just the two or even three sort of factors that lead to these decision-making processes, right? Like, is this, is this ego-driven? Is it, is it greed? Like it's not enough. It's never enough. I want more. I want more. I want more. Is it, the, the, the need to feel important, is it just a misalignment of incentives, right? Like, have we failed as a regulatory atmosphere to adequately watch what these people are doing so they know they can get away with X, Y, Z? If we give them an option to turn back time, do you think these people would do the same thing again? Or do you think that their minds, like you said, placed under all of these variables and in these circumstances are going to do this set of action and, and that's just kind of it? That was a lot of questions, but... <laughs> Well, I think all the variables that you mentioned contribute in one way, shape, or form. Um, I mean, the, I'll say the variable that I, I found particularly interesting to explore is what I think of as this psychological and physical distance between those who engage in, in misconduct and, and the, the ultimately the victims. I mean, the thing that makes this, I think, the world we operate in, and this has only been over the last, you know, if we go 100, 200 years in, in a really substantive way, is that I can do an action here sitting kind of at my desk on my computer screen and potentially affect people thousands of miles away for, for the better or worse. Um, as you become more and more senior in a, a company and more powerful, uh, you know, your keystrokes play larger and have larger and larger ramifications on, on others. And that separation and distance between the doer and the kind of the recipient of that action uh 
lessens that immediate uh, psychological impact associated with causing harm. Um, I mean, I was very confident that, you know, spending time with many of the people in the book that are in my book, if I was to turn around, I wouldn't really worry about them grabbing my wallet out of my, uh, you know, back pocket. Mm -hmm. I wasn't also worried about them hitting me. Um, but if I look at the, they, their actions, I mean, they cause dramatically more harm to many, many more people. Billions of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Billions of dollars. But, but they didn't see those individuals. I mean, many of them right. struggle to even say that there are victims because they don't really exist. And I mean, this goes, we were talking earlier about, you know, phones and distance. I think when we see a lot of what people are saying, like, oh, like the crazy, crazy things people say on like social media um, and the really heart hurtful things I see, you know, people saying junior high on and like, to talking about their friends the, the, as you get farther and farther away you don't see someone so you can just write something online um the person's thousands of miles away you've never actually met them it makes it very easy to do really awful terrible things yeah and that the person you're harming is more of just kind of this abstract notion you're not saying it you know quote to their face uh and so i think in so many areas of the world not just talking about white collar but talking even when we th see about a lot of people's what i call day-to-day -day conduct and and what I call the social media world, that that distance can do a lot of, I think, pretty awful things. Uh, we're just not well-designed as humans, I think, to be as sensitive to things that are thousands of miles away with an abstract, you know, entity as to someone that is, you know, right, right across the table from you. Out of sight, out of mind. I think it's yep. true in more ways than one. And, and you're hitting on that exactly with that distance. Is there, I mean... It, you are one of the only people I think, in, and you may be well the only one in the world who has been this close to this specific group of people, you know, this infamous group of people that lurk in the shadows of white collar criminality. Learning from their stories and hearing about their psychology, how has that, if, if at all, right, and, and you seem to be an incredibly grounded person, so maybe it didn't, but did this at all change the way that you looked at the world around you and shaped, how did this shape your perspective? I think uh, maybe a, a couple of different things. I mean, first, I think it made me a, a lot more humble and think much more carefully about my actions and those around me because, you know, all these people were, they're very, very smart. They're very thoughtful. They're, they're in a lot of ways that the people I think we all seek to be, I, at least if we look at a lot of their biography and a lot of their CV, and all of a sudden they've done these things that we find just uh, uncomfortable. It's like, how did they get there? And you know, to the extent if you start looking at, again, we can all fall prey. And so, you know, thinking about, you know, the decisions we make and how that can arise, I think it's just made me, you know, a lot more humble about decisions that are being made. Um, I think the other thing that I found really interesting is how adaptable we are. Um, I mean, you know, the people flying around, a lot of these people, I mean, they were flying around the G6, you know, living just incredibly comfortable lives. And I'm meeting them in like a state prison, which you know, to, to listeners, not that I want to say is advice of if you're going to commit a federal or state offense. Uh, let's just say a state prison is is not where you want to be. Federal prison, by comparisons, for many instances, much comfier. Uh, comfy is an exaggeration. It, it's much more manageable. So like state prisons that are underfunded and just frankly, it's everything you expect. It's dirty. It's noisy. It's disgusting. I mean, it's, it's an awful place to be. And you, it's amazing to see someone that like only lived like an extraordinarily privileged life with staff around and like fly, like, you know, asking to grab something at the vending machine and sitting under like a flickering uh, fluorescent light in like a room that, you know, the first thing I want to do leaving is like take a shower. And uh, 
but you could see like they're at ease. Um, and, and I found that remarkable, like a circumstances that you're like, we can never handle that. And it turns out we have, I think we have the, we have a much greater capacity to, to evolve to our, what we need to do um, than we might expect. And, and I was always surprised because I, I sat there and I, it's one thing I still, how, how can they handle this? Like, how could they spend seven years and not go like crazy and nuts given the life they lived? Um, but they find ways to adapt. Uh, so it's, it's, it's interesting. We're maybe more malleable. I guess this goes to my broader point. We're all much more malleable um, than, than we think we are. Do you think that these folks' level of intellect and, and you know, you, you mentioned in some ways inspiration by way of what they've achieved, do you think that sort of personality lends itself to be more adaptive? And that's why they seem to have been able to adapt better? That's an interesting, that's an interesting point. I've never actually really thought about it like that. Um, I think there's a lot more a sense of reason and in, in trying to like rationalize and try to be strategic about how to spend that time. I mean, if you saw some of the plans, like the plans of, you know, reading plans and kind of what I call self-improvement plans, I mean, they're pretty extensive. And I think in some instances, they seem to work. Uh, there, I mean, there were a couple of people, let me say, that probably weren't the best, what I would call dad. Uh, you know, they didn't spend any time with their kids for you know, the last 15 years. Uh, all of a sudden, now they're in prison, they're reading every page of the textbook their their son or daughter's reading. So in the off chance, they're, you know, they call them that night and they speak and they mention something in their homework that they can actually like, Talk about chemistry. Uh, I found that, you know, there, there's something uh, oddly, uh, like, admirable that, like, that same, what I call dedication that they threw themselves into their work and it allowed them to succeed and then, unfortunately, also then fail. They've, like, re-harnessed that energy towards something else. Um, and sometimes, in at least a couple of instances, that was becoming, like, a better, a better, I think, person when it comes to those around them, a better dad maybe a better spouse, uh, a better and more trustworthy person with their friends who are probably questioning their relationship. Um, so there were a couple moments in seeing this uh, that I, I found, I, I think I gained something from actually just watching how they, what they decide to reprioritize in their own lives. That's very interesting. Okay. So Eugene, just listening to you now, there is no doubt, and I'm sure listeners would agree, that you are brilliant. And, you know, this... this. Okay, I think you're being a little generous, but... <laughs> well, for folks that are either listening, a Harvard undergrad and an MBA, PhD, right into a Harvard Business School professor, uh, you guys know the drill here. Listen, how... Have you always known and been self-aware to the extent, you know, in your life about your own level of intellect and this may also be a loaded question but how does someone become smart in the way that you are is this genetic and we're all totally screwed i mean for the people who are sitting there thinking wow he's brilliant i wish i could be like him what advice you know would you have for them by way on on their intellectual journey so first I can say uh, definitely not. It's funny. I can actually remember being in, in kindergarten. We had a th program called Program Plus, which was like where the smart kids were supposed to get like the extra like session. And I remember that I got tested and I remember I didn't get the first time. And, you know, my parents, like every, you know, ambitious parent, I think asked the teacher that I got another shot. And I remember they had those pic like those pictures. I think it, it, 
it's some kind of abstract pictures and you were supposed to explain things. And I remember kind of going through those and I can actually picture that now. It's like, I can picture this as a kindergartner actually seeing this and doing this test. And again, I didn't pass. Um, so I didn't get in program plus and in first grade, I think second grade, which to me was, I can actually remember my sadness that like, I wasn't like that smart to get into the more advanced program. Um, so, you know, it's funny, I, it, you know, Howard Gardner, uh, who's, you know, one of the you know, most celebrated scholars at, you know, the education school talks about uh, these notion of like multiple intelligences. And I, I you know, I, I guess in some way, I, I think that probably absolutely is true. Like, well, I mean, it is true from his work, but like, I mean, I see that in, in my, maybe my own way, in my own life, that apparently whatever standard by first grade that you're supposed to do these like pictures for program plus, like I didn't have that sort of intelligence. Um, and I can say, looking back at grad school, let me just say, I, I got some grades in grad school that I never received in my life before. Uh, they were they were new letters to me uh, on a report card. <laughs> and I worked very, very hard. And it's because like, it was hard. Like some of the, the math, it was just exceptionally hard. Um, and it was, was not by any means the top of my class in like the first year of grad school, like quite the opposite. <laughs> I, I was, I was, I was happy if I could try to hit, hit average, um, you know, but then I go, well, what, what do I, what did I do well? Um, I mean, there are areas, I mean, I obviously work on some pretty unusual work. Um, I think there's a lot of, especially academics when I look that to connect with a wide group of people that have, let's say are in a very say a stressful situation would be uh, certainly one way of characterizing people who are facing criminal allegations and going to prison and be able to almost consistently, I would say, connect with each and every person and, and have in-depth conversations. I'll say I'm very persistent. Uh, I'm very patient um, and I'm re- pretty empathetic uh, and could try to understand. And you put those together and now you can start doing some interesting work Um and so I guess I appreciate where my strengths are. I'm, I'm not going to win a race, certainly uh, among, not only, I'm not going to put myself among Harvard faculty, but like among people who have like, you know, doctorates in, in social sciences, like when it comes to technical prowess. Um, but when it comes to being a little bit more creative and maybe a little bit more patient and persistent to try to go after some really tricky questions that might take some years to understand, um, I'd give myself an A in that area. So I think it's figuring out what you're actually good at. Um, and it's funny when I think of my, my kids, so I now have a four and six year old, I guess what I wish for them is that, you know, uh, you know, it would it be great. They went to Harvard. Like, sure. Uh, of course, I'm going to say that would be wonderful, but I would say that's not, I would say the measure of which I would define their like success and happiness is kind of vague to say, of course, I would want them to be happy. What I would like them to find is like something that they feel that they're really good at and that they're really proud of what they're achieving. And that can be something very, very narrow and very specific, something that they create themselves. Um, but I think that's when I think of the joy of my work and, you know, and the feel of it because I think if you have some success in that, that also kind of reinforces that you feel good about what you do even further. It's because you found some, even if it's some niche that you you're, you're thriving at. Um, and so what I wish for them is that they can find and discover that. And I want to support that, whatever it might be. Um, uh, you know, if it's 11th century medieval poetry from, you know, some long lost civilization, but that's just what they enjoy and they're awesome at it. 
Um, they're the only person in the world that that's interested in it. I would say that's awesome um, because that's what they're passionate. And I think they'll, that'll lead to the happiness that I, I hope that they have uh, in life more broadly. I love that you mentioned multiple intelligence and this this concept of humility regarding what you are, you know, your own limitations, what you're good at, what you're maybe not so good at. I mean, do you think that we in some ways can define this, that sort of humility and focus as a form of intellect in and of itself? Yeah, I, I wish, I, I, I wish we did a better job, I think, as a society recognizing that. Um, I mean, it, it, on one hand, it's great. I see universities, we've got away from like the SATs and standardized testing and some benchmarks. But, you know, when I look at, you know, to succeed in high school and go to a great, uh, a, a great college and then going to college, going to grad school, going to grad school, you know, the whole kind of rat rate, it's still so traditional. And like, people are so confined to like, these are the buckets that you need to, to, to be respected. And I find that so unfortunate. Uh, I think it probably holds a lot of just extraordinary people back from realizing their full potential and probably being the, the happiness that they could probably enjoy by thriving in that area. Um, because we do kind of still bucket people so narrowly around certain types of what I call intelligences or in this case, it professionally, we could say skill sets. Very interesting. And I couldn't agree more that that humility, we very much need to do better as a society. It, it is not emphasized enough. Okay. And speaking, you know, that's, that's a great segue actually into this, this follow-up question I have for you, Eugene. Speaking of humility, I know so many smart people and maybe by our redefined definition of smart, they're no longer smart. Haha, ha, take that. Um, <laughs> but I know a lot of people <laughs> there we go. Who, who, who a lot of people think are smart, perceive as smart, they get really good grades and they're successful, they have a nice car, they have a great job, you get it, X, Y, Z. But they're also very much full of themselves. You know, their poop doesn't smell, they take themselves incredibly seriously, and of course that sort of energy just has its you know, impacts on the people around them and those who work underneath them too. You, on the other hand, right, are this living example of somebody who has that brain that everyone can just tell is teeming with life and design and intellect. You've put it into practice and earned the respect and the title that, you know, people can only dream of. And yet here you are telling me to my virtual face that you are not smart, right? And that you have limitations, that you are not perfect and that you are human, you have that authentic spirit, how have you been able to retain that sort of grounded lack of, of, of an ego that threatens to undo so much, especially now, but even going forward, do you have anything in mind that's mental tricks to keep yourself grounded? I don't take myself too serious. Uh, it's funny, being in a fairly serious, you know, I'll say academics are known as a fairly serious type, I guess, I'm pretty lighthearted. Um, I mean, it's how also I think I've managed what I call both successes and failures um, is to kind of keep keep some sense of perspective. Um, I mean, I, I'll say my first year when I started teaching at, at HBS, uh, I mean, our standards for teaching are exceptionally high. Uh, it's, it's something we, I think we rightfully celebrate in the school and the students, uh, I think, expect uh, the faculty to be awesome and extraordinary in the classroom and dynamic you teaching these cases. Um, I think like a, a lot of first year faculty, let me just say it didn't go as well as I had hoped. But let me say first year was a disaster, like an absolute disaster. Uh, 
I mean, the presenting is hard enough in itself, and I'm teaching material that really I'm still trying to fully understand and comprehend myself. And there were a couple of classes that I went in the following day, and I'm like, you know what? I just need like the first 15 minutes to do like a redo because some of that was just wrong. Uh, some of it was off. And it's funny when I got my feedback for my first year, uh, you know, no one, no one, uh, let's say, celebrated me for my uh, financial reporting and control brilliance. Uh, let's just say I, I would be really worried if any anyone did. <laughs> um, but everyone really appreciated the, I think, the effort that I extended, and they could tell that I genuinely was 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 trying in a way that wasn't just giving it my best effort, but realizing where I was succeeding and where I was failing and where I was where I was falling short, setting myself with a high bar to keep trying to do better and be transparent and be open with people. Um, it's funny. I think that that sense of transparency is something that uh, a lot of people, for, for some odd reason, they think if they only show that confident and successful side, people will respect them more and think that they're even smarter or more intelligent or more successful or, you know, more, more better, faster kind of thing. Um, I don't know, my life, I, at least I, I see quite the opposite when you expose or you're more open and transparent about what you know and what you don't know. Um, people tend to respect you more that you, you actually have, I'll say some degree of insight for where you're, where you're failing and where your stumbles are. And, and uh, you're not blowing that off, but you're acknowledging that and you know when to ask for help. Uh, you know, when you need to try harder, um, it seems to work. I'll say at least maybe this is over. That's worked pretty well for me so far. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I don't think anyone would disagree there. And it's funny you mentioned that because I've noticed the same pattern in my own life in that vulnerability builds trust. And it's funny how in our society, it seems like we've taught people that being intellectually vulnerable is in some ways, I don't know, disarming yourself, right? If, if you accept, oh, I don't know, right? If you say that confidently, you're now going to be respected less by those around you or looked on in a certain way. My question for you, Eugene, is have you always kind of had that sort of personality where you just don't take yourself seriously? Or was there a moment in your life where it kind of clicked and, and you realized this is the kind of person I want to become? It's funny. I don't think I felt, I'll say, very what I call like confident about what I was doing, and really that the sense of like flow uh, until I actually, I'd say, it was my second or third year on faculty, and that wasn't because everything was going well. And quite quite the opposite, I was I kept like uh, having paper after paper dinged, but I understood like this is what I wanted to do and what I was really happy at. Um, I would say for me, grad school was a very uh, it was pretty miserable, and I, I say it was pretty awful at times, and there was. Certainly many instances I, I thought of actually just quitting. Um, my parents were kept nudging me to just stay, stay on board a little bit longer. But I think what I found so hard is, you know, I left Harvard College. I did, I did well. You know, I was confident in myself. Uh, I was confident, you know, going to great school and doing well. And I went to grad school where, you know, now you're with a group of people that are only studying what you're studying. And they're from all around the world. And many of the people it's very like mathematically intensive and you know, there are a pile of people that already have like masters and PhDs from, uh, you know, overseas from like great schools in Russia that they're literally like eight years ahead of you. Um, and you just get crushed. And I think there was something very healthy about, I will say working exceptionally hard. And I remember calling, calling my parents 
and and hitting the mean and like a Chicago mean, let's say it's not a Harvard where we like we give like an A minus when you like you're Chicago, like the curve is like a C C plus B minus curve. Like that's what they curve around. And like being thrilled that I got a B minus on a midterm and actually feeling really proud about myself. And and I know my parents were probably <laughs> surprised at my new sense of what, what I considered like, uh, uh, you know, success. Um, but there's something really healthy about that where like you almost need to get kicked back and you need to try like your absolute hardest. I really was trying my absolute hardest and getting crushed simultaneously that it made me realize that like, if you try, if I can, if I continue to think I was like, you know, the, the, you know, the best thing ever, I mean, that just simply wasn't true. The data suggested I, I was, I was at best, like maybe in like the, the third quartile. <laughs> um, and you know, you, you learn how to then overcome that. I mean, for, for me, I think that's also where I learned to refine my strength because I realized, you know, it's funny before I went to college, actually, I wanted to be a physicist, uh, or an astronomer. My first year, I had as a, a block mate, um, uh, a brilliant. I mean, he, he won the. Uh, he was from Romania and won uh, was one of the finalists in the Mathematical Olympiad. I mean, he's one of the smartest people I've ever encountered. I mean, it's the kind of smartness where it's like, like ten times smarter than you. Where it's like you can't even compare. And I learned that that's not a game that I could even compete. So I tried to find like, what is my skill set? What can I do? And so. That's where I started refining what I'm working on. And even in grad school, I learned that, you know, that technicalness was not where my strength was, but I think I was a little actually more creative, maybe coming up with some ideas. I could come up with cool questions and think of really weird, funky ways of trying to answer those. And that, uh, that allowed me to, to excel. And so this is again, like finding what you're good at and like then double downing on that area. And then, you know, the areas you're not good at, <laughs> Being maybe that vulnerable, maybe being open, maybe even making jokes of it <laughs> at times <laughs> allows you to be a little bit more comfortable, like in your own skin. Right, right. If you have the humility and the confidence to let yourself be vulnerable, I might add. Yeah, I think I think we're a lot more forgiving. I mean, as as a society, and, and it's funny. It's not because of like you know something changing over the last like, you know couple of years. I know like. In sports over the last, it seems like the last two or three months, we're now starting to be much more understanding and forgiving of athletes that, you know, need to take a break for, for a reason. And so that's a, but that's a very, very, let's say new phenomenon over the last month or two. This isn't something I, I think is, is we're generally pretty empathetic of other people. And if people are, I'll say, open to us, and I would say transparent to us and vulnerable to us, I think we learn to be a little bit more trusting to them. And you, I don't know, you can develop a relationship much faster. I mean, it's the one thing I think through a lot of my work, it's developing relationships with people who are kind of by definition, after you've been kind of prosecuted, you're frankly a little skittish about talking to anyone. Um, you know, being that, that open and that those vulnerabilities allow you to develop relationships much more effectively with people. Very good advice. And, and I could not agree more. Okay. So I have one last question for you, Eugene. It's the most important one for the day. What is your spirit animal and why? <laughs> um, this, is, this is a good one. This is a good one. But uh, so it, it, this is going to be a weird one, uh, given, you know, what, what I do. But I'm going to go a, a, like a, a, like a three-toed sloth. Um, and uh, 
it's weird because you know sloths just kind of look like they sit there all day and they're they look really really lazy i guess i look at uh, sloth being very different um i look at them as these incredibly meticulous creatures that if you watch a video of a sloth like moving a step it's like this precision and care and thoughtfulness and i almost like i almost see it's like a mindfulness around each and every step because for a sloth to go to the ground that's like that's like a half day activity so you don't let's say you don't screw around um you know you need to be very deliberate you need to be very careful there's a reason why you're doing that and you know, much like I look at our day, like we all have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm recently reading a book. We all apparently have like 4,000 weeks is like the average lifespan in, in that zone. You know, it's not a lot of time. And so like we should use that time very deliberately and very carefully and very mindfully. And sloths seem to do that uh, kind of by definition <laughs> in everything they do. And so I guess I would like to approach life, uh, I guess, methodically, whether it's work or friends or family or you know it's it's a different way of maybe saying the work hard play hard but like you know when you're not working like have an amazing fun with like the best people that you can find with the best relationships that you one can have and when you're working like find that flow find the thing that you're awesome at and really try to excel at it it's like the sloth it's like the sloth way of life it just with mindfulness just maybe a little bit faster so maybe i want to be a I'm going to answer your question. I want to be like a sloth that can maybe have a little bit of caffeine and a cup of coffee. <laughs> I, the mindful sloth. Yes. <laughs> I, I love that you are making the sloth the hero that it deserves to be. It, it gets such a rep of being so slow, but I love the argument of it being mindful. Eugene, that is all I had for you, but I will, of course, want to give you the chance. Is there anything right now in this tumultuous period of the world uh, with COVID and the pandemic and the Delta variant. And as I speak from my Sacramento apartment here, where the skies are grayed out from wildfires now that ravages every year, I'm, I'm laying all of this groundwork. And then you can say totally nothing. That's totally fine. Is there anything that you'd like to share from your wisdom and life experiences with, with the world broadly? Huh. Uh, big grandiose. I, I mean, maybe the last thing, I'll, and I, I allude to this. I, I mean, on one hand, I appreciate we're all, we need all these digital communications in order to be connected. I mean, that's kind of like, especially with COVID and everything that's gone on. But I, I guess it's my wish and, you know, to anyone that listens, like to understand like good strategies of like how we come back together um, and we uh, are able to engage. Um, I, I'm worried that we'll, we'll all become so comfortable with just spending the day on, on you know, TikTok and, and Zoom and text messaging and, you know, Google Meet that, that the next thing we know, it's, we find it inefficient to actually, you know, spend time with one another. And I'll say that's the question I think I'm, I'm looking at. I'm, I'm hoping that, and I'm, I'll say I'm most actively trying to prevent myself from falling prey, prey to that now that I actually do have a cell phone and kind of have to have a cell phone. <laughs> so um, I think this will be the interesting, I see one of the most interesting questions, which, you know, professionally we're figuring out in the workplace, but I think even more importantly, we need to figure out personally what that means. Incredibly good advice. Eugene, thank you so much for joining. This was incredibly insightful for myself and I'm sure for everyone else out there who's listening, all 20 of you, just kidding. Great. <laughs> hey. Oh, really, really a pleasure. Enjoy. We, we would do this just, just, if this was just you and me, this was uh, a blast. So <laughs> thanks, Eugene.